Uh, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. So the very beginning of your Bible, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, if you are a guest with us, you've come at a good time because we're starting a new sermon series today. We're taking a break from the book of Luke. We've been walking through the book of Luke, which is really our favorite way to study the Bible together on a Sunday morning is just to walk through whole books of the Bible. But Every once in a while, we like to take a break from that and go to more of a topical series, and so that's what we're doing today, and so the, the title of the series is called The Promise Keeper, and it's because we easily forget God's promise. I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but I know I have the tendency to, it seems like, forget everything. I'll, I'll walk into a room and forget why I walked into the room, okay? Have you ever done that before? Yes, it happens, all of us, and so uh, I, I found a few of these cartoons that uh, maybe you relate to. So, so how's your memory holding up, right? With a sticky note of his wife on his, on his wife's forehead. Okay, next one. Okay, so why do I have a string on my finger? Have you ever done that? Like have a reminder like a rubber band and forget why you put the rubber band there? Okay, next one. Uh, does anyone else put things in a safe place and then forget where that safe place is? That's my life right there. That's my life. I re- yeah. All right, the last one. My name is Bill and I'm forgetful. Hi, Carl. All right, so that's all of us, right, though? I mean, we all have a challenge remembering things. So here's a question for you. Is our forgetfulness part of the curse, okay? Is it a result of the fall, or is it part of God's design? Hmm. Is it, in other words, is it a, a curse, or is it a, a blessing? And I tend to think both. Okay, it's a blessing in the sense that God has designed us to be able to forget painful things in our life. I mean, thank goodness we do not remember the physical pain that we go through. Childbirth, okay? Thank goodness you don't remember the physical pain of childbirth or breaking a leg, okay? You don't, your body does not remember all of that pain that you go through in those times. Even the, the pain of somebody just betraying you over time will eventually and so I think there is something to God's grace that he's given us the ability to forget the painful things in our life, but it's also a curse in the fact that it's hard to remember even the most important things in our life. Uh, if I go to the doctors, I'm, and Cam laughs at me because I can never remember my kids' birthdays. And so maybe you have important things in your life that you struggle to remember also. Now, the Bible recognizes this, okay? The Bible recognizes especially that we all struggle from spiritual amnesia. And so throughout the Bible, you're going to find passages of Scripture peppered. And throughout the Bible, like Psalm 77, 11 through 12, uh, David wrote this. He says, I will remember. It's almost like he's trying to convince himself here, okay? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. David recognized that whatever is important to you, for you to remember it is going to take work. It doesn't just come, and come naturally to us. I mean, very few times in your life do you go into a situation intently trying to remember it. Okay, very few times do we do that. Very few times do we go, it's like studying for a test, right? We don't like to do that. Memorizing lines for a play, we, we don't tend to enjoy doing those kind of things. And so it takes work, and, and the Bible recognizes. In fact, God often would create 
visual reminders for the people of God, for the Israelites. He gave Noah the rainbow, right, as a reminder of his, his promise keeping that he would never flood the whole earth again. He gave all of the, the feasts and the festivals, the sacrificial system to the Israelites so that they would be constantly reminded of his faithfulness. He had the Israelites build these altars of remembrances so that they would remember his faithfulness. Jesus, when he gave us the Lord's Supper, what did he do? He said, do this in remembrance of me. So the primary purpose of why we're going through this sermon series, The Promise Keeper, is because I recognize in my own life that it is very easy for me to forget the promises of God, to forget how faithful he has been in my life personally and throughout the history of humanity. And I know that that's true of all of us, that we easily forget that. And so we're going to take a look at the promises of God in the Old Testament, specifically as they pertain to Christ. Christ is promised from the very beginning. Uh, Christ was not plan B for God. And so we're going to see the faithfulness of God. And my prayer is that as we look at the promises of God in the Old Testament pertaining to Christ, that we would, one, grow in our excitement about who Christ is. We had grown our understanding of who he is, and we would grow in our excitement. This is a season where we should be excited about Christ. We would grow in our joy for him. We would grow in our trust and his faithfulness. And we would grow also in the midst of that, as we grow in our, our, our joy for Christ and our understanding of who he is, we'd also grow in our boldness to tell other people about the faith, his faithfulness. Proclaim the gospel. And that through all this, I really hope that we get a, a big picture, that, that we would connect the dots as we look at all of the, the promises of Christ in the Old Testament. You're going to see this thread, and we're really going to dig into that today as we talk about Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is called, theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium which is a big $5 word that just simply means this is the first promise given by God after the fall that one day his people will be redeemed. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner describes the Proto-Evangelium as the first glimmer of the gospel. This is the first mention of Jesus in the Bible way back in Genesis 3. Pretty cool. So let's pray one more time. And then I want to read this passage, and then we're going we're gonna to dig into it. Father, you have given us numerous promises that we constantly forget, and so I plead with you that your Spirit would lock those promises into our heart and into our minds, and today we would be blown away by your faithfulness as we look at the history of redemption. I pray that we would we would recognize and we would believe with all of our hearts that if we are in Christ, you have us in your hand and you will never, ever let us go. No matter what is going on in our life right now, no matter what situation we're dealing with, we can trust deep down that you've got a hold of us, that you love us, that you are for us, and you have proven that time and time again, especially on the cross. Open our eyes to see your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. All right, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so what's going on here? This is in the, in the middle of a story. This is in the context of after the fall, the curses that God is giving out. Specifically, this is the curse to the serpent. And so God creates Adam and Eve in his image to display his glory. He gives them authority to rule over the world. He says, look, I want you to be fruitful and, and multiply. I want you to have lots of babies, and I want you to subdue the world. You are going to be my, my governors. Okay, I am the king, and you're going to be my governors. But he gave them one very strict command. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or I promise you will surely die. Gives them that one command. And of course, the serpent comes and deceives them, convinces them that, okay, you don't need to trust God's promise. Instead, you need to trust me. If you eat from this fruit, you'll be like God. And so they bought that lie and they said, look, I want to be my own God. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with just being a, a governor. I want to rule uh, myself also. I don't want to be accountable to God, and so I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to do what I want to do, and all of us have said that in some way, shape, or form, right? And so they rebel against God, just like all of us have. They sin, and immediately what happens? They feel shame, and they recognize that they're naked. And so they try to cover themselves up with fig leaves, and they try to hide from God, which, of course, you can't hide from God. I mean, trying to hide from God is like trying to swallow a bowling ball, okay? Even, even if you could get your mouth around a bowling ball, it's going to look really weird in your mouth, okay? You can't hide from God, and so they try to hide from God. It doesn't work. God sees them, and this is how Adam responds when God finds him. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, God, and I, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, do you really think God's trying to get information here? No, of course not. I mean, God is not looking for new information. God knows what they've done already. He's looking for a confession from Adam. But instead of giving a confession, what does Adam do? He does what most of us do when we're, when we're caught, when we're confronted. He gives excuses instead. And so the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And again, God's not looking for answers. He's not looking for information. He's looking for a confession. And again, she passes the buck. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, God doesn't look at the serpent and say, what did you do? He doesn't give him the option to, to talk back at all. He looks at the, the serpent and starts cursing him. And in verse 14, we read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, some people read that, and they, they argue that, well, snakes must have had legs early on. They must have had legs early on. And they may have. In fact, there's some scientists that, that point out that uh, pythons have these little nubs down by their pelvic bones. And, and so maybe that's the case. But that is not the point that God is trying to make here. Okay? His curse is much worse than losing legs. 
crawling on your belly and eating dust in the ancient world was a sign of great shame. In fact, in Psalm 72.9, we read, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. That phrase, to lick the dust, was a sign that you've been utterly defeated, that, that you've been vanquished, that you have been brought down to the lowest possible level. So you are licking the dust. You are nothing. And so if you think about it, the snakes for us, are kind of like a rainbow in a sense. Okay, you, you look at a rainbow, you should be reminded of God's promise to Noah that he will never, that, that God's going to be faithful never to, to flood the whole earth again. You look at a snake crawling on the ground eating dirt and it should be a reminder of Satan's defeat. And so this brings us to our passage in verse 15. Let's take it line by line and break it down. First part says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, enmity means conflict. It means hostility, hatred. And, and I wonder in this moment, right after Satan was able to convince Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, I wonder how he might have felt in that moment. Remember, Satan was, a, was an angel that got kicked out of heaven because he rebelled, because he wanted to be like God. He was the most beautiful angel in God. And, and he, he rebels, though, and so God kicks him out of heaven to earth, and he is able to convince a third of the angels to come with him, though. And so I'm thinking that after he convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit and rebel against God, he, he probably feels pretty good about himself, okay? He probably feels pretty cunning. He's thinking, yeah, God, you might have kicked me out of heaven, but you know, look, I've got my kingdom here. I've got my, my demons, and now, you know what? I've converted your prized creation. The humans now are mine. They don't trust you. They trust me. And I'm sure God looks down at him and says, you silly worm. <laughs> okay, you know nothing. I curse you. And you know what? They're not going to love you. I'm going to redeem them. In fact, there's going to be enmity between you and them. They're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. You're going to be nothing to them. In fact, let me tell you about the woman's offspring, literally the woman's seed. That's what that word means. Let me tell you about him. And so he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does he mean there? It means that one day a descendant of Eve, a descendant of the woman would completely crush him, Satan. Yes, you will harm him but he will utterly wreck you. You will make him bleed, but he will destroy you. This is the first glimpse of the gospel. This is God giving the human race hope that one day they will be restored. There's a Savior that will crush the serpent's head. This is also the beginning of a thread that you can follow from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the New Testament. It's throughout the whole Old Testament. That word offspring, literally seed, you find it almost 50 times in Genesis alone. And you can trace it all the way to Jesus. And if you're taking notes, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this. We're going to put it up on the screen too. I'm, I'm just going to kind of hit the, the mountaintops 
We're not going to go through every single offspring of, of Eve all the way to Jesus. That would take us forever. But I'm going to pretty much preach the whole Old Testament here in about 10 minutes. And so hang on. And so it starts in the very next chapter. You have Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Okay, if you know that story, Cain kills his brother, Abel, because he's jealous, because God accepted Abel's offering and would not accept Cain's because Cain did not give his first and his best. And so Cain is jealous of Abel. He ends up murdering his own brother. And then at the end of chapter 4, look at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 25. And so that, after that happens, and Adam knew his wife again, sleeps with his wife again, and she bore a son, another son, after Cain and Abel, called his, and called his name Seth. For she said, God had appointed me another what? Seed, offspring, instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called him, his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so you go from there to the beginning of chapter 5, and what do you find? A genealogy, okay? You have a list of, a, a list of the offspring all the way to this guy named Noah. And so God then preserves the seed, the offspring, through the flood, preserving Noah and his family. And then at the end of chapter 9, what does God do with Noah? He creates another covenant, another promise with Noah, gives him the rainbow, says, look, I'm, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm never going to destroy the earth like this again through a flood. And then in Genesis 10 and 11, you see Another genealogy, you see the, the, the seed all the way from Noah to a guy called Abram. God was cha would change his name to Abraham. And God would promise, make another covenant, another promise with Abraham that his offspring would become a great nation. And this is a pretty amazing promise. We're going to look at it next week in detail, but Abraham was extremely old. His wife was also extremely old. They were well past the age of being able to bear children. But he makes a promise with him and says, look, your offspring, your seed is going to be a great nation and they're going to be a blessing. Or your offspring is going to be a blessing to all nations. And so Abraham would have a son, Isaac. And Isaac would have a son, Jacob. And Jacob, his name would eventually be changed by God because he wrestles with God. His name is changed to Israel, which means those who wrestle with God. Israel would have 12 sons, and they would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of those 12 sons, not the oldest, not the most loved by Jacob, uh, one of those sons was Judah. And Judah was pretty significant. Now, we're introduced to the story of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37, a very famous story. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. There's movies made about this story. Uh, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And he, he gave him everything. And his brothers are, of course, jealous. And so he gets sold into slavery. And you, you know the story of Joseph. But what's interesting about the story of Joseph, that in the middle of the story of Joseph, there's this chapter 38 of Genesis, and you can turn there if you want. Uh, chapter 38 of Genesis just seems totally out of place. Chapter 
38 of Genesis is the story of, this, of one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, and Tamar. And it's this soap opera of a, a story. We don't have time to go through the whole story right now. But it's, it's the low point of Judah's life. Why would that be in the middle of the story of Joseph? Because ultimately, the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. It's about Judah and God preserving the promised seed through Joseph and them being able to survive the famine. And so Judah survives. And in that chapter of chapter 38, you also see that, one, Judah is redeemed. And secondly, he has a son, um, son Perez. And then towards the end of the story of Joseph, it's really interesting because it's Judah who offers himself as a substitute as a sacrifice for his brother Benjamin because he knows his father loves Benjamin. And then at the end of Jacob's life, he blesses his 12 sons. And when he gets to Judah, there's this prophetic blessing. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's Cub, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so the promised seed that would come through the tribe of Judah, we see way at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, what is Jesus called? The Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is worthy to open the scroll. The the tribe of Judah would be known as the kingly tribe. And Judah's son, Perez, would have a great, 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 great grandson, David. And so David would be promised that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And if you think of the, the story of, of David, he comes and, and one of the first things that he does as a, lo- as a small child is what does he do? He becomes a represent- representative substitute. He, he looks at the giant and he says, okay, nobody else from Israel will face him. I will represent Israel. I will face the giant. And what does he do? He wins the victory for all of God's people. is Boom! This should blow your mind, right? This is amazing. God is faithful to keep his promise. And eventually King David would have a great, 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 great grandson who? Jesus. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1, the first verse in the New Testament, after 400 years of God being silent, not talking it all to the people of God. How does he open up the New Testament, the New Covenant? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew goes on to list the descendants, the offspring, the seed from Abraham to David and from David to Jesus. The beginning of the New Testament is a genealogy that screams The God who promised in Genesis 3.15 can be trusted. He is a promise keeper. It's throughout the whole Bible. I mean, that gives me chills just thinking about it, looking at 
passage after passage and story after story of God keeping his promise. And this, this promise that we're talking about today in Genesis 3.15, it really has two parts, right? Part number one is uh, God promises that Satan will be defeated. And second part of the promise is that Jesus would bleed. And so we're going to talk about those two things. First one, the, the Old Testament is really, it's the record of the line that leads from the promised seed who would, that would crush the head of Satan, that would crush the head of the snake. Jesus, think about him, like Judah, he would stand as a substitute on behalf of his brothers and sisters. He would lay down his life, he would accept the wrath of God poured out upon him that he might be like David, win victory on behalf of God's people, that all who are found in Christ would be rescued. Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush Satan's head in that moment. It's really interesting. At the end of Romans, uh, Paul refers, and if you, want, if you want to turn there, you can. It's Romans 16. I'm going to look at verse 19. But in, in, the, in his letter to the Romans, Paul's writing this letter, and at, he lays out the gospel beautifully in Romans. And then he challenges them to live in light of the gospel. I remember, and Scott preached on this a, a few weeks ago, that we're, we're called to live our lives as a living sacrifice. That's, that's what we see in Romans. And after that, at the end of his letter, he says this in verse 19 of chapter 16. He says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is as to what is evil. And so he's saying, look, I, I know, everybody knows that you are obedient, but I need to remind you of what is good and what is evil. And then he says this at the very end. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so he refers back to Genesis 3.15. He he, he encourages, he says, look, all the hard work you've been putting into this, all, all of the, the struggle, all of the pain and the suffering and the persecution that you have experienced, none of it is being done in vain because there will be a day that the, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. What is he saying there? He's saying that Christ's victory, for those of you who are in Christ, it will also be your victory. There is not a, a sin that you are struggling against that is too big for God's promise. He will be victorious. Over that. There's not a situation that you're going through right now that is too big for God's promise of Genesis 3.15. He will be victorious. There will be a day where everything will be made right. And he promises that. You can trust that he, if you are in Christ, he has got you and he will never, ever let you, let you go. His victory will be your victory. And on the cross, he declared that victory. Think about it. Satan's primary weapon against you was utterly wiped away on the cross. It's condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins are... If you are in Christ, your sins are completely forgiven. And so when, when you hear Satan lie to you and say that, look, you will never be good enough. You will never measure up to God's standard. That is true, but you know what? The good news is this, that Jesus Christ did measure up to that, uh, that standard. And because you are in Christ Jesus, God looks at 
you and sees his son. And so you are forgiven completely. The victory is yours. Christ's victory is yours. And so it was declared at the cross, and now those who are in Christ, we wage war against Satan by declaring the good news of the gospel. And we look, day, we look forward to Revelation 20, where one day Satan will be thrown into the, and cast into the, the lake of fire to eat dust for eternity. And so Genesis 3.15 declares and promises that Satan will be defeated. But secondly, it also promises that Jesus would bleed. And so we know that the shedding of blood is a requirement for redemption. We, we saw that at the very beginning. God promised Adam and Eve if, if, if they rebelled, the consequence of the rebellion would be death. And God could have just wiped humanity out. As soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, he could have said, I'm done with you. He would have been just to wipe us all out in that very moment. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he shows his mercy and he shows his grace. He says to Satan that, look, what you meant for evil, I meant to display the glory of my mercy and grace through Christ. And so the first thing that God does after he sends out the, these curses is he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, you need some better clothes right? And he makes for them skins to wear in place of the fig leaves. We tend to just skip over that or like skim over that part, but that's pretty significant. Think about that's the first animal death. It was also the first animal sacrifice. And in that moment, God is saying to Adam and Eve, I'm going to have mercy on you. What happened to this animal should have happened to you. And you're going to cover yourself as a reminder of that. You're going to cover your shame with the animal skin as a reminder of that. But also it means that, look, I'm pouring out my mercy on you. I'm going to do what you could not do on your own. I am going to forgive your sins through the blood of another. I'm going to provide a substitute sacrifice for you. And that's what he does with Christ on the cross. He bled for you. In the 1700s, there was a German by the name of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And he had just finished college, studying at the university, and decides to go on a sightseeing trip through Europe. And on his sightseeing trip through Europe, he happens upon this museum in Dusseldorf, and there was this painting by Dominica Fetai, and we're going to show that painting here. The painting was entitled, Behold the Man, and it was a bloody picture of Jesus in just the crown of thorns. And he stared at this picture, and at the bottom of the picture was written, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And as he stood and he stared at that picture, his life would never be the same. He meditated and he, he thought about what Christ had done. He looked at that bloody face. He dwelled on the suffering of Christ. And he asked himself this question. He says, look, 
I've loved him. He had been a Christian for a while at this point. He says, I, I've loved him for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And for the, le- the rest of his life, he really did that. For the rest of his life, he dedicated, he had the blood of Christ at the forefront of his mind and his heart. And what he ended up doing, he created a, or he founded a, a Christian community called the, the Hernuts. Uh, it, it, it's a word that means the, the Lord's Watch. And that community became part of the Moravian Church, and they were best known for, they were just intent, they were, they were so focused on mission. They were, nothing could stop their mission. I mean, they were utterly focused. I mean, unparalleled missional zeal that they had. In, in 1727, this community, they, they, they said, okay, look, if we're going to reach the world for Christ, we need to start praying. And they, they decided, okay, we're going to start praying around the clock. And so they had a sign-up that started. And every hour, people would take an hour block of prayer. We're going to pray 24-7. And that prayer chain lasted for 100 years. 100 years, this, this community prayed nonstop for missions. And that, it was a small community, about 300 people. And in that, three, in fact, in the first 65 years, they sent out over 300 missionaries to, to places like uh, the West Indies, Greenland, Lapland, Turkey, North America even. And, and the story goes that when they sent out their first two missionaries, they, they got on the boat in Copenhagen, and as they're about to leave, uh, the, these two missionaries, they, they raise their hand, they call out to their friends, and they said this, they said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And most of the missionaries that got sent out in those first few years especially did not return. They gave their lives for the mission. And they they were utterly amazed by the blood of Christ. I think as it's appropriate as we enter into a time of communion that we don't just walk through the motions here. That we would, that we would be reflective and we would ask that same question. We'd look at this picture and say, I, I, and see, Jesus has said, I've done this for you. What have you done for me? Because I guarantee every single one of us, no matter what you've done for Christ, there there is still stuff that we're holding back. Um, and I guarantee there's not a better gift this season as, as we give gifts. There's not a better gift that you can give to yourself or you can give to your family than to set out constant small reminders of what Christ has done for you on the cross. That's what Jesus said. And he said, do this in remembrance of me because he knows that we all have spiritual amnesia. And so flood your house, flood your mind with constant reminders of what Christ has done for you. I mean, put up pictures. Um, uh, Set reminders on your phone. Put up sticky notes on the mirror, on the fridge, on the TV. Constant, set your alarm to wake up 
and spend time in the Word. Read through the, the Christmas story. But I would encourage you to help, let it lead you to the passion story. That you would focus on the blood of Christ as a reminder of the promises that He has given us. He has proven His faithfulness to us. And that's what communion is really all about. It's about God giving us this gift that he reminds us that he is faithful to keep his promises. In fact, he was so focused on being a promise keeper, he was willing to shed his own blood for you and for me. So let's pray that God would help us to be reminded of that constantly this season. Father, we recognize once again that we easily forget your promises. And I pray and I beg you that, that you would remind us that through your spirit, we would have a constant reminder, especially in those moments of temptation, that we would remind, be reminded of your promises. I pray that in the midst of challenging situations, that that, that would become a trigger in our mind to remember the promises that you have given us. And I, I pray that we would spend time reflecting on how faithful you have been in our life to this point, that you have brought us through many trials already and that you have us in your hand and you will never let us go no matter what we're facing right now. Remind us of that in this moment as we celebrate communion. And I pray that it would move us to say, look, for what you've done for me, there is nothing that I wouldn't do for you. Pray that if there are things in our life that we are holding back from you, help us be more willing to sacrifice and give. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our sacrifice. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. Use us for your glory, make us bold for you. In Jesus' name, amen.